Okay, there we go. Three, two. Well, welcome back to our next edition of the Mike Care Radio Program. What's up, America? As always, probably broadcasting from Ocoee, Florida, USA, planet Earth. And my next guest is Mr. Jeff Shaw from Cleveland, Ohio, who is a great uh, comedian and stand-up comedian. And we're so blessed and honored to have him here today. We appreciate his time to tell us all about his stand-up uh, comedy. And Jeff, two things before we get uh, started. Want to wish you a belated happy birthday, and thanks for your service. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, Veterans Day, you mean, correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah. My birthday was on the eighth, and then uh, Sunday, and then my um, Veterans Day was uh, on Wednesday. Yeah, I. It's funny because. Um, I turned uh, I turned 18 in the voting booth, so um, I voted uh, for I believe President Reagan in, 19, in 1984, and then um, and I'd already been in the service, so I joined the army when I was 17. So yeah, uh, you can be 17 and join the army. So I, I don't know about your listeners, but I sleep much better at night knowing that our country is being defended by the same kid who couldn't make me correct change at Cold Stone Creamery. <laughs> right. Yeah, basic, basic training, piece of cake for a 17-year-old. Basic math, not so much. But uh, yeah, so yeah, I served uh, for six years in the Army Reserves, and uh, I mean, I joined when I was 17 because I was hoping. I mean, you hear my voice, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not not exactly an alpha male, so I was hoping that the Army would teach me how to be a man. Unfortunately, the Army taught me how to make my bed, iron my clothes, and shine my shoes. Everything my mother had been trying to teach me for seven years, 17 years. <laughs> so yeah, now you know why women love a man in uniform. They know he can do chores. <laughs> great, great so that that's great uh, jeff so let's kind of start there take it from there because usually i like to talk about you know how you got into comedy so is that kind of when you got out of the, the army is when your comedy career began or well kind of um i had two interests when i was well three interests when i was younger um a potential career in the military because i was brainwashed by all the action movies and uh, when I was a kid, and then I was a huge fan of comedy from an early age, and then I was a huge heavy metal fan, so I wanted to be a musician, a comedian, and a Green Beret, those three things, and if I could have found a way to mix them all up together, that would have been cool, but, um, so yeah, so I started listening to comedy albums when I was a little boy, I would go to the, the um, library, and I would get Bill Cosby records, uh, later on George Carlin records, Bob Newhart, um, mostly, you know, the clean ones, uh, Steve Martin, and I would listen to him at night, and uh, I would watch uh, Johnny Carson, and then when I was around 11 or 12, I discovered Saturday Night Live, and um, I believe in 1977, I saw Andy Kaufman do uh, Saturday Night Live and The Show, and, and we were living in Memphis. Uh, when he became involved with Jerry uh, Lawler and started doing the wrestling and everything. And so I became a huge fan. I was just, I was like in awe of him. I didn't understand it completely. I, wasn't, I didn't know exactly what he was doing, but I knew there was something completely different to what he was doing. And so I created a little stand-up act where I mimicked Andy Kaufman. I basically did his act beat by beat, but I put in my own jokes. And everything. Um, so um, I won talent shows with that uh, in school, at campgrounds, um, at the local libraries, and stuff like that. And uh, then when I became a um, teenager, we got Showtime and HBO on cable, and I started watching comedy specials and comedy contests. And then I started taking acting class in high school, and then the teacher told me, when I did a sketch uh, that I wrote, she said, you're really funny. You should do open mic night at the Cleveland Comedy Club someday. And I didn't know what she was talking about. But when I came back from um, the Army after my two years of uh, training and to become a reservist again and start on some kind of career, I had seen Stephen Wright and Emo Phillips on a Tonight Show and Letterman. And so I decided that these two comics can you stand up comedy to be cool, even though they're very weird people, then maybe I could do the same. 
So I gravitated towards weird, offbeat comedy. I thought maybe that's a way I can make myself popular and get people to like me by uh, taking leveraging my weirdness and coming up with bizarre jokes. And so I started writing jokes on notepads while I was working in a factory. And in August of 1986, after I, a few months after I graduated from the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, as an Army linguist in the Army Reserves, I started. Uh, I went to my first open mic night, and it, uh, I can tell you the story in a couple of minutes. It's, uh, uh, but it's, uh, it's a pretty unique story. But it didn't go very well, and I didn't do it again for like six months later. And then I started doing uh, comedy full time while I was still in the Army Reserves. And I would just book my gigs around my drills. And every once in a while, if I, if I couldn't do that, then I would, they would let me make up the drill in whatever city I was at, just go to the local reserve unit. You know, so that's how I, I graduated from high school and became a soldier and a comedian almost at the same time. Oh, great. So now, Jeff, we want to let our audience, well, we want to first start that we we found you, where I found you was on, actually, on my Facebook uh, feed, actually, the video feed, on something called Dry Bar Comedy, which I guess, we've had several uh, guests from there, which I guess is basically a collection of so-called clean comedians, and they, perf- they, they, they go somewhere where you're performing, and they put your set on Facebook. Is that about right? Uh, no, um, uh, there's only one part of it that's right, uh, is the part that it's clean. Um, dry, dry Bar Comedy is a company and theater in Provo, Utah. And they are um, owned by a company called VidAngel, and uh, short for Video Angel. And what they do is they have a, a service that filters out um, questionable material or objectionable material for Christians and for Mormons, for people who don't, who don't want any television with any bad language or whatever. So they have this thing called VidAngel, and it's a service that you buy, and it streams out. It cuts out any scenes or content through Amazon, Netflix, network television, um, and so you can watch popular movies and TV shows without worrying about swear words or nudity or whatever. And so they saw that comedy was becoming very popular on the Internet, and they, and they also had people comment to them that even on the Internet, it was hard to find clean comedy. That all, you know, you think that on YouTube, anytime you clicked on something, that it would be clean since it's on YouTube and anyone can watch it. But then they found out that's not the case. So what they decided to do was to be the Christian or a Mormon or Jewish, basically, you know, people of faith and people who who don't like dirty comedy or swearing, that they were going to be the Comedy Central or the YouTube for, the, for those type of comedy fans. And so they have, they took an old, like, DFW or something like that, like an old community theater or whatever, and they have all their headquarters on the upper level. And then downstairs they have a beautiful stage and uh, theater area, and they put out seats. They, before, I don't know what it's like now during COVID, but when I was there, they had, like, 200 people in there, and they treat it like a comedy club. It's called the Dry Bar Comedy Club. And uh, they have state-of-the-art equipment, and they take hundreds of comedians, and what they do is they release the comedy specials on their website so people can buy them and stream them for like a dollar or two. And they also have an app that you can download for your smart device, and you can watch all of the specials for free on your app, and they have it set up so you can tip the comedians. And then what they do to promote the specials is when your special comes out, they'll put you on the app, and then all the hardcore fans uh, that uh, that are the core audience for Dry Bar, they will vote on all your bits. And then they will take the four bits, the three to four bits that got the most likes, or they call them laughs, and then they will, at a pace of about one video per month, they'll release your uh, videos on Facebook and on YouTube, and then they promote them. And then the ads from the videos is what generates money for the company and also for the comedians once you repay production costs, but then you can get tips from people as well. 
and uh, now they have like they'll they'll tape dozens and dozens of comics per year, and I think they've got a, a couple hundred already. And it's a beautifully shot, digitally shot, perfectly edited, um, four to five camera special. And on Facebook is where they get the most viewers, but um, it, they are full specials that they are um, taping, and they just cut it up and put segments on Facebook and on YouTube. And then after a year, they'll release your entire special. So, um, my, my, yeah, mine's been out for uh, since August of 2019. So I have four really nice clips that I use as my promotion, and then I have the full special uh, on on YouTube. Now, my special did well. It got lots of great comments. It's got me a lot of work. But just like anything, just like when you have a record label, you'll have amazing musicians who'll sell. Well, back in the old days, now nobody sells anything. But um, back like when record labels were king, you know, you'd have the multi-platinum artists, but then you'd have artists that sell 100,000 copies, 200,000 copies, 300,000 copies. So I have a very respectable amount of people who viewed my clips. My clips, including my full special, have uh, gotten almost 10 million views on Facebook, but then it's a lot less on YouTube. I'd say over a half a million, but there are some people who've had 6 million views on YouTube. But um, the great thing about dry bar comedy is, is you said so-called, but they, but they are. Every, every special is clean. And what it's done is it's shown people that clean comedy does not have to be fluffy or boring. A lot, a lot, a lot of people, um, a lot of people who don't like dirty comedy um, is, be- is because they're not watching good dirty comedians. And a lot of people who don't like clean comedy, they don't like it because they're not watching good, clean comedians. And so um, I would say that somebody who doesn't like dirty comedy would love a great comedian who knows how to do that type of stuff. And somebody who doesn't like clean comedy might love Jerry Seinfeld or might love my special. So, But for people who know for sure that they don't like any swearing in their comedy... These these uh, hundreds of, of specials that are available, you know, you can watch the whole thing, every special on the app, and you can watch full specials on the Facebook page. And the great thing about it is these are some of the best comedians that you've never heard of. And and these comedians rival the ones you see on Netflix. And it, it, it's provided a forum for older comedians who are still masters of their tra- craft but can't get on television. And so there's a, they have a great cross-section of new up-and-comers, like young comedians fresh out of college that tear it up and become very viral, viral with a certain segment of the Internet. Then you have guys like myself in their 40s and 50s who, who Hollywood's passed them by, but still do corporate work, cruise ships, and it turns, a, uh, it turns a whole new audience on it to all these great comics that people thought weren't relevant anymore. So it's really a win-win for for everybody. It's really been a, quite a phenomenon, and, and you you said you enjoy watching as well. I do. Right? I, I I I really really do, and I thought that. Uh... They're all good, but I thought that yours was of a higher quality, a more unique, more cre- cre- creative, and that's what I mean by so-called clean. Is it basically what I'm referred to is just what you just said that. It, it can be good, you know, I don't like putting labels, oh, he's a clean comedian or he's a blue comedian. So that's kind of what I meant well, there. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, 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 because yeah, cause the whole thing is that they're just funny comedians. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, is uh, is like every one of those specials, like 200, 300, whatever, and I know most of those guys, they're, they're all clean and they're all like fall out of your chair funny. Yeah. But the funny thing, the funny thing is, is it, there are people who watch those specials going, "Oh my goodness, I didn't know clean comedy can be so funny. This guy's great." And what they don't understand is, every one of those comedians, including myself, can go into a venue where they want us to be dirty and just tear it up. And so the 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 the, the, the reason why I love doing clean shows on cruise ships. And I love doing this video is because the number one thing I hate um, that people say to me as a comic is when they go, um, uh, you know, you don't have to be 
dirty to be funny. Yeah, nobody said we had to. People are being dirty because they want to. And so I can't stand people who treat comedy... uh, I I can't stand people who treat their preference for clean comedy as anything more than a preference. Right. Because you look at anybody who doesn't like swearing, I guarantee you they've all committed some kind of sin that's going to get them thrown in jail if anybody found out. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, yeah, especially, you know, I mean, older people. There's a lot of older people in the audience who don't want you to do any swearing, but if the statutes of limitations didn't run out, the, the, the local sheriff would be hunting them down 50 years later. So, I mean, people, I mean, everybody's good, everybody's horrible. And so I find that usually the people that protest the loudest about not liking dirty comedy, they're usually the freakiest people or people that are nasty people in their, in their private life. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those people that says, yes, if you do clean comedy, you're a good person, you're great. And if you don't like dirty comedy, then you're a good, better person. No, I don't like dirty comedy because I find it boring. And yeah. because I like the purity of the language, I like the purity of the jokes. But then again, you know, Bill Hicks or David Tell or George Collin or some of my favorite comics because the language, the so-called blue aspect to the humor is just tools and techniques. They're just paints that they dip their brush in. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I, I like the color. I like the color blue, but, you know, you, you should leave that for the sky, not for the trees. You, you right. know? Yeah. So that's the same. Yeah. So, um. So the great thing is, is dry bar comedy is a place for really skilled comedians to perform. And skilled comedians know how to play any type of venue. You can be clean, you can be dirty, you can be whatever. And um, because it's about respecting the audience and it's about the craft, it's about... And uh, I think that, you know, when people say that it's hard. It's easier to be a dirty comic. No, it's easy. It's easier to be a bad dirty comic than it is a good clean comic. But it's actually harder to be a good dirty comic than it is to be a good clean comic. Because when you start, because most so-called blue comics, it's not about it's not about scatological references. It's not about sex. It's about politics and social issues, and they use the swear words to get across their very um, very polarizing. Uh, social, you know, opinions on social issues, you know, so George Carlin wasn't about being naughty or about being, um, you know, it wasn't about sex. It was about his, his, his political statements and he used swearing to make his point and put an edge on the jokes. And that kind of stuff is so difficult to do well. And people don't realize that. You know, and, and the reason why I gravitate towards clean comedy myself is because, uh, and why Dry Bar has been so helpful for me is because when I send it to clubs and they don't want me to be clean and they want, they know they got a, like a, like a, a tougher audience, like a casino or like maybe a one nighter in a bar, they see my, they see my level of experience and how I write my jokes and the strength of my act and know that I can handle any situation. And uh, and so that's that's very important, you know. Yeah, I don't know that that that's that's, that's something, uh, Jeff. So I wanted to ask you. You know, we usually ask about uh, you know the, this question to uh, comedians. You know, being in your situation, I mean, being in the environment, and that's about hecklers. I mean, in this particular clean world of comedy, do you get a lot of hecklers or? Um, a heckler doesn't have to do much about if it's clean or dirty. A heckler, I mean, has to do with people who don't understand comedy. And that's, that's all the time. That's everybody, you know. So one of the biggest misconceptions that exists about stand-up comedy is that hecklers help a comedian. That's the last thing any comedian wants. And, um, and a lot of comedians who work the crowd and do so as a regular part of their act is they're doing it preemptively because they're so tired of hecklers and they're so tired of having their show interrupted that they'll work the crowd to keep everybody in check. 
So they'll 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 work the crowd to um to to find where the problem people are, to control the situation, maybe talk to them, let them get their their shots in, you know. So um I'm not saying that uh there are comics that don't like interacting with the audience, but even people who love working the crowd and, and make a like a make up a good half of their act, they don't like hecklers because there's a big difference between working the crowd and being heckled. When you work the crowd and you get the audience to talk to you and you ask them questions and they give you answers back and then you have funny rejoinders or comments or toppers for what they say, you're in control of the situation and you're in control of the conversation. You're deciding who you talk to, how long you're going to talk to them, the tone the conversation is going to take, how hard you're going to hit them, if you're going to keep it playful, if you're going to keep it fun, if you're going to make this person look good in front of their friends and maybe, you know, make them kind of the star of the show so they're walking out beaming, you know, and everyone's high-fiving them. Or if it's someone you need to put in their place and embarrass them so they never go out in public again, um, you're in charge of all that. But when people heckle you and they interrupt your show, they are hijacking it. And, uh, and the problem is, is so many people who heckle or try to be part of the show know nothing about stand-up comedy. So they don't understand that when you ask a question, it's rhetorical, you don't want an answer, but you're setting up for a great observation or a great punchline, and these people interrupt you. So, But what you have to do as a stand-up comedian is you have to um, learn how to deal with people who interrupt your show in a variety of ways. There are so many rules that you have to follow as a comedian, um, uh, unwritten and also, you know, written, or at least in the oral tradition, passed around their little comedy campfire after the shows at Denny's, um, that you have, to, you can't punch, uh, punch down, you can't get personal, you can't embarrass people. And so there are so many, so many ways that the comedian's hands are tied that even the comics that go after comics uh, 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 hecklers really hard, believe it or not, the biggest jerk in the audience and everybody's like laughing hysterically when you nail them, um, that everybody wants to see you tear them apart, there is a point where you can say something that everybody knows it's over the line and they're going to turn on you and they're going to defend that guy. So there's so much you need to know about dealing with hecklers and stuff that you really don't want to deal with it. You know, and also, too, it's like, you know, when I write jokes, you know, I'm not writing in some other guy's lines. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so dealing with hecklers is probably one of the hardest things you have to do, and they happen everywhere. Even when you do um, a virtual comedy show for a, a corporation, and it's during a meeting or a seminar, and they have a laugh break, and everybody's working, and they're high on coffee, and, you know, and it's, 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 a, it's a business event, but everyone's got their, their you know, uh, collars unbuttoned, and they're having a good time. But you would think that that would be a safe area, but you can have a boss who he thinks he's funny and he's talking over all your jokes and commenting on every one. Or, like, I'll, have, I'll do shows for churches or uh, synagogues, you know, online virtual shows. I did one Saturday. And you'll have some nice little old lady that, that, that doesn't know she's not supposed to comment on every joke with her microphone two inches from her mouth, you know? So there's a, that, so heckling, so to speak, happens virtually, happens live, it happens in so many forms. The key is, and what takes years of experience, is to realize that you don't treat the little old lady from the synagogue who's commenting after every joke innocently the same way you would some college kid shouting at you drunk in the front row. And so, um, and, the, the, and the great thing is, is when you're dealing with hecklers, when you're coming up with a heckler line, or when you're dealing with um, the crowd and working the crowd. Essentially what you're doing, unless you're one of those hacks that's stealing other people's heckler lines that you've memorized, but if you're honestly in the moment and either making the, uh, the heckler your friend or if you're embarrassing to get them to be quiet, you're, you're basically writing jokes in the moment right there. And so that's why the comics that are the best at working the crowd are also the comics with the best jokes. And because we're the comics with the best jokes, we want you to hear our jokes. We know we can work the crowd. We know we can be funny up the top of our head, but that's not what we want to do. So 
So what happens is why people think that we like hecklers is that um, when you heckle a comic who's a great writer, he writes a joke that's so funny right there that these people think, oh, that's going to be funnier than the material. That's how this guy is funny. They don't realize that he's rolling his eyes in his imagination, going, I wish this person would shut up so I can get to my material. And they don't realize that if they would just let the comic create his world, uh, get hooked into his rhythm and bring them along for the ride, that they're going to like the material much more than him making fun of the, the drunk guy with the funny hat in the front row. And so good comics who know how to think on their feet and to handle any crowd make it look like that heckling is what really gets the show started. Well, in reality, what it is is it, it what stops the comic from getting to the good stuff, which is his act. And so um, that's why I suggest to comedians um, to not deal with a crowd until you have an act. Some comics will try to take a shortcut and encourage heckling because they know they can, you know, they maybe they can get some easy laughs. But if you can't write. If you can't write a good joke over months or a year of doing it every night, how are you going to write a joke on the spot? You know? Right. So, um, yeah, and so, so, and the great thing is, is once you become a great writer and once you know how to handle yourself in every mo- in any moment, you're going to learn how to handle those situations. And, and the gratification comes from not winning or embarrassing somebody or putting a heckler in his place but by handling the situation. And a lot of times what I do is I get somebody heckling me is, you know, you don't want to go after them right away. You want to get to learn about the person and you want to get the person on the stand, so to speak. So they incriminate themselves. So like there are a lot of comedians that will, you know, put up with somebody and, and then have a engage with them so that they end up, uh, tie the noose that hangs themselves, comedically speaking. Um, but me, I don't like to invest that kind of time in it. So um, I will engage with a heckler if I feel the heckler is, if I'm curious about why somebody said something, if I feel the person likes me and is trying to share in the experience and is having the time of their life, and it's just being um, annoying, then um, I will do whatever I can to make them the star of my show and to, um, and to, uh, um, to uh, make them look good. You know, I will put the time into getting my point across that I need them to be quiet, maybe let them say a couple things, maybe let them get a couple of laughs, so that I can go back to my show. But if I feel somebody's being disruptive and I feel that talking to them at length or trying to get to know them, they're just going to be drunk and stupid, then I'll slam them a couple of times to get them to be quiet and then have security deal with them. You know? Uh, oh, wow. That, that's very interesting, Jeff. So that that is true about uh, security. I mean, is there ever a situation where the security has had enough before you've had enough? Or... Yeah, that, 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 that's why it's very important. Um, uh, it's very important when you're a headliner, when you work a comedy club, that you have a talk with, like, um, some clubs they have a doorman, some clubs they have ushers. You know, sometimes it's just, like, the biggest waiter that, you know, the strongest waiter will handle it, or sometimes the manager himself. But you find out whose ever job it is to deal with hecklers. And you want to talk to them uh, before the show, and you want to develop a strategy. Because um, these people are there every week, and they're tired of it, you know, and uh, and they're not comedians, but they're just, they get tired of drunk people, they get tired of hecklers and stuff like that. So... But they don't really have a, a so they, basically they can react in a way that can hurt your show. Um, if 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 somebody is talking to you, but they're just saying, you know, like they're saying, oh, you're really funny. Oh, you remind me of my grandson or things like that. But they're irritating you and they're irritating everybody else, but they're just nice people and they don't realize it. Then you as the comedian need to handle that situation to get laughs out of it 
but also to neutralize it so those people know not to talk anymore without embarrassing them. So what happens is when they just start, when they just start going, oh, you look like whatever, the, the, the doorman or the security guys, they just, they don't care what the person's saying or what their tone is. They just know that person's talking. They can go over and, and threaten to throw them out, and they can say something that hurts the person's feelings or embarrasses them. So um, I always, t- you know, and you don't want that to happen because then you're the one who suffers because they'll think that either you had something to do with it or since you're the person in charge, you're the captain of the ship, that you're the person responsible for embarrassing that poor person. So what I always do is I explain to um, the uh, staff that when I'm engaging with somebody and talking to them, then I, I have deemed their disruption to be interesting and something that can add to the performance and something I can control and something that I can turn funny. And if I'm showing respect and patience with somebody that I deem them to be a positive force in the audience and good people, and I have the skill to handle it. So don't step in. If I either ignore somebody who's yelling and shouting and talking, or I comment about it and then move on without engaging with them, that is a clue or a hint that I'm being um, irritated by this person and I want them to stop. And, and also, if I mention something really quickly without really getting into a conversation with them, that, that should mean to the staff that I consider this person too volatile or too drunk to, to, to deal with. And so that is their clue to go over and handle the situation. And sometimes um, people in the back can't hear if people are heckling or making noise or saying things. So I'll, I'll have a quick interaction with the person to bring them to the attention of the security. And then what you have to do, if security does get involved, then what you do is um, when security comes over, you stop commenting on the situation, you get back into your act, and you walk over to the other side of the stage, and you, and you play to a completely different part of the audience so that you're not looking at what's going on with security and the people. Um, and uh, a lot of, one of the biggest mistakes you can make when, when working with, an, um, with, with hecklers is, is if they're irritating you, and then the staff comes over to do something about it, and then you keep picking up the scab. You open up the wound, like you make fun of the people while they're being talked to by management, or that after management gets them to quiet down, you go, "See, I told you to shut up." You know, this, you know what I mean. So, so once staff gets involved, your options are now limited. So it's always best not to get to the point where staff is involved dealing with hecklers. And the only way you can do that is by developing a relationship with the doorman and the ushers and, and, and explaining your preferences and making sure that they're all in the ball and paying attention to the show and that you have a signal, you know, or at least a plan of action for how they're supposed to interrupt. You know, um, nowadays um, uh, I'm much better at concentrating when people are talking. A, a year before the pandemic, I would go nuts if I just heard a, a an air conditioning fan go off. Right. You know, I'm very easily distracted. You know, if, if a waitress says, uh, you want a straw? I can hear that. And I go, ah, shut up. But nowadays, you know, I think just because I'm so used to playing cruise ships and so used to doing um, Zoom shows where there's all kinds of distractions, that now I have a much better level of concentration and a much uh, uh, a deeper tolerance for people interrupt the show. And I think that the better you get as a comedian, the more you enjoy doing your act and the more you feel empowered on stage and knowing that you have all the material you need to do the show, lots of shows to pick from, that you can go in any direction, that um, if, if somebody in front of you does a, a hunk of material that's similar to you and you have to drop it. I've had like, people go on, i had guys go on in front of me and say they look and sound like a woman and rob me my first five, ten minutes of my act and still kill and still have enough material. So usually when comedians self-destruct or handle a situation on stage incorrectly, it's because they are insecure and they think they're going to die on stage and they think their career is going to be over and they think they're going to get fired. So all of their diva behavior or overreacting or getting angry or losing a temper on stage stems from them feeling threatened in that environment. And so, uh, and, and if they don't have all the conditions just right, if the audience isn't just behave, 
And if the waitresses don't bend over but we're walking in front of the stage, when people aren't getting their phones out, when people aren't talking, they can have a good show. But when they start getting distracted or people start heckling or the things aren't right or the microphone cord goes out or anything happens, then they start to look at those things as a threat against them getting the job done. And so then they, they handle the situation uh, incorrectly. Me, I've been doing, you know, I've done almost 9,000 shows in 10 years working on cruise ships and playing every type of college bar and, and, and biker bar and comedy club and BFW hall and noisy casino with the, with the you know, um, the slot machines going on in the background, drunk people heckling me. I've had people rush the stairs. I've had people chase me around. I've had drunk people chase me with beer bottles. Uh, around the, uh, the, um, the, the, the club. I've had old ladies throw appetizers at me. I've had everything happen to me over the years that I know that I can handle any situation, that I can go in a different direction with my material to handle any type of crowd, and I can handle any type of disruption. And when, when you know you can do that, then you, it allows you to just lose yourself in the show and be curious. Like, why is this person heckling me? They're not a threat to me, but why they're interrupting? And how is everybody else reacting? Is everybody reacting positively? Are they curious? Do I feel like these people want me to make this part of the show, make it funny, or they want this person to shut up? You know, so when, when you're not on your guard and when you're not afraid, you can be present and observant. And then you can start gathering information. And then you, then you can, then all your comedy skills, your joke writing skills, your crowd skills, your um, control over your timing, over your emotions, you can bring all that to bear. And then automatically, like on autopilot, you will start collecting enough information to take whatever's happening and make it funny, make it fresh, make it interesting. And, uh, and when you don't treat disruptions in the showroom as a threat, and you and you treat them as a curiosity. You can choose. You can then make a um, a an intelligent decision, measure decision on whether you need to neutralize what's going on. This person talking to you or shouting at you or or asking you questions, or if it's something that you can you know dedicate a little time to and try to make it into something. So uh, it really comes down to all those. So uh, people in the audience heckling or whatever. A lot of it is pretty much just neutral, and it depends on the, the attitude of the comedian, his skill level, and whether or not you can turn that into something that ruins the show or something that, that makes the show even special for everybody there. And, uh, and it's, it's, so because that is so difficult, and I just explained all these moving parts to you, most comics would just say, just shut up and let me do my show. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, so, um, although, and so, although we can handle any situation, it's, it's, it's you should really, if you really like stand-up comedy, just let the comedian do their act, because you're really robbing yourself. Uh, stand-up comedy is that hard. It's that difficult. It's that nuanced. Just let the comics do the show. But um, if you are going to heckle comedians, you know. You, you better have a you better have a thick skin, and you better know how to play by the rules. Like, um, uh, I'm a I'm a very I am a very pro woman, and I like I it never occurs to me that a woman couldn't be president. I've, I have so many women bosses. I just it just doesn't it's just not something that registers. It's not supposed to be like I would never like not want to be led by a woman, bossed around by a woman, work for a woman, vote for a woman. So, but. In comedy clubs, uh, for whatever reason, women are the hardest hecklers to deal with. So it makes a big difference if your heckler is a man or a woman, because um, and I'm, I'm generalizing to a point, um, but I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I think men have a longer tradition, I mean, through sports and through locker room talk and through um, uh, bee busting. Um, that we are used to making fun of each other, other guys, and razzing each other, and then going for beer afterwards. That men, I think, have um, uh, have a long tradition of razzing each other and insulting each other for fun. So um, if, uh, if, uh, 
a, a male heckler heckles me and insults me and and says something, and then I come back with a comeback that's equally funny and even funnier, and I slam him even harder. He's gonna he's gonna laugh, and he's going to look at that as like, oh, he got me, that's good, and then he's gonna be like even in more of a good mood to play with me some more for the most part, unless the guy's drunk, you know. So um, and also you know because boys roughhouse when we're young, and you know are more prone to horseplay when we're little. We learn the rules. Like how much, you know, when you play fighting or if you're wrestling, you, you know how hard you can hit somebody, how hard you can slap somebody, how hard you can get them in the headlock. And then you know that when you've reached that point where it's not fun anymore, you know not to cross that line. And I think, you know, even like the, the most alpha male hecklers, like the biggest, you know, proverbial cliche rednecks, all those guys, you know, they're just trying to test your metal. They're trying to see if you can hang. And, 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 all, and, and all in all, they're just trying to have fun, and they're playing. They're play fighting with you. So if you, you can hit them hard, and, um, and as long as you're funny, they're not going to turn on you. In fact, they're going to buy you a beer after the show. Whereas with women, they don't have that tradition. And so when, a, when you in, uh, zing a woman back, she's embarrassed, and she doesn't look at it as a game. And you can really – so when you have, when you have female hecklers that are – drunk and are not sure how they're coming across and they don't know how loud they are, you have to be very, very careful and very, very skilled. And you have to take your time, you know. And uh, so um, I hope, hopefully this will be enlightening for your listeners that when, you know, the question of heckling is much a deeper, um, you know, area of study for comedians and something that we have to be very... Um, so we have to put a lot of thought and learn a lot of things, a lot of ways to deal with all kinds of different heckling and, and, and crowd work over the years. It's, 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 it's much more complicated than people would think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. uh, Jeff here. Uh, We wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, your social media and your website. So first of all, do you have a website? Yes. It's uh, Jeff, the fundy.com. Jeff, the, FunDude.com, and that stems from my nickname from Carnival Cruise Lines when I was a entertainment staff member for 10 years. I helped launch and run the Punchline of Comedy Club chain. I was one of the comedy club managers as well as the comedian, and uh, Carnival Cruise Lines puts the word fun in front of everything, like, you know, fun time, um, fantastic, this and that, you know, um, uh, fun shop, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I, uh, decided that I was going to have a nickname and because I was, uh, everybody on the ship that was on the entertainment staff would have some kind of nickname, nickname like Dolphin Doug or Sexy Kevin or, or some kind of stupid nickname. And so I, I was new to the company and I was mocking that because I thought it was stupid. And one day I was sitting around with my fellow staff members and we were watching The Big Lebowski and Jeff Bridges says, I'm the dude. And I said, yeah, well, my name's Jeff, and I work for Carnival, so I'm the fun dude. You know, and so that stuck. So that was my nickname for years, and it actually became very popular. So JeffTheFunDude.com, at JeffTheFunDude on on, um, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, on Facebook, I'm Jeff Shaw and Comedian Jeff Shaw. But if you type in JeffTheFunDude on Facebook, my, uh, my Comedian Jeff Shaw page will come up. Okay, and I think we explained it a little bit before, but if you don't mind, for our listeners, how they can get to this dry bar comedy, then if they want to see you doing that? Yeah, well, well, for me, all they have to do if they want is just run a search in Google for uh, Jeff Shaw Dry Bar Comedy, or they just go to jefftofundu.com, and all my clips and my special are on my site. They're linked to my site. But if they want to... Um, experience dry bar comedy become fans and watch all the great comedians that are that are available you know they can go on facebook put in a search for dry bar comedy and it will take you to the dry bar comedy page and they have all kinds of categories they have all the videos linked by subject by you know you know all that kind of stuff um chronologically they have full specials they have clips I'll put like, you know, clips about relationships, clips about, you know, working, clips about kids, you know, all together. But then if you want to watch uh, 
the newer full specials uh, because um, full specials don't get put on social media until like a year later. Um, if they, uh, the best thing to do if you're a younger person who enjoys um, apps on your phone, the Dry Bar Comedy app is available in the major app stores for both formats. And you have hundreds of comedians at your fingertips. You can watch full specials. You can watch clips that you like. They have them categorized in all these uh, cool different ways. And they're all searchable. Or you can um, go to the drybarcomedy.com site. And um, if you want to watch on your television and we have your computer set up so that, you know, um, you can stream, you know, and, and, put things in your computer onto the big screen. You can stream the, uh, the uh, you can buy the specials and you stream for like a dollar or something like that, $2, you know. So the drybarcomedy.com, uh, the drybar YouTube channel, drybar Facebook channel, and the app for those who are more tech savvy. Oh, great. Jeff, I wanted to ask you, so what I saw was about a 20-minute uh, clip. Is that the clip or the full version or...? The uh, full special is like um, uh, like twenty six minutes. Oh, maybe that was it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that was about about it. Yeah, to see. Uh, so, so that's great. That uh, yeah, I just saw that a few days ago. So that that is neat that they could they could uh, they could do that. So it's like everyone's seeing it uh, now. Then. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They do they do a great job. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Jeff, that uh, sounds good. And one question I want to ask you, are you still do? well, I don't know right now about the cruise ships, but is that something you still do as cruise ships, sir? Well, no, the cruise ships have been shut down since, right. since March, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my business model. That's how I make my money. So uh, mm-hmm. my career is in, in limbo and uh, long-term until, uh, until, uh, until the ships come back. And so right now I'm doing a lot of virtual shows. And if anybody, um, uh, that's how I'm making most of my uh, income right now. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult still. I mean, uh, because you don't get work every week, you know, and, um, when you do, I can get a little bit for unemployment still, you know, on any weeks I don't get a gig, you know, but, um, uh, the great thing is, is like with virtual shows, you can perform anywhere. So, anybody out there is looking, you know, to hire a comedian for a, um, you know, a, a, a holiday party for either their friends or for their place of business, whatever, just go to jeffthefunded.com. I have a virtual comedy show, um, uh, EPK, uh, Electronic Press Kit, as long as my regular Electronic Press Kit, it has a list of all the corporate um, clients I've had. I've done uh, virtual shows for, like, Google, Amazon, uh Toyota, Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, National VFW, um, uh, churches, synagogues, um, financial groups, medical groups, um, educational um, groups, and uh, I can do um, a show for any business uh, or, you know, or even family private party for the holidays or for next year for any type of event, but just reach out to me on, uh, on my website. Okay, Jeff, we really do appreciate all, all, all your, your time and all of your insight. And before we go, you had mentioned something about, at the beginning of this, about a, a, tell, about a story of something. Did you want to tell that, or you you remember that? Or? Uh, well, that was a, that's a real long story. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it depends on how much time you have. I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty long story. I mean, are you up for it? I mean, I'm up for it. If, um, if you're not, um, uh, well, it takes a lot of energy. I, I can. Uh, I'll just give you the convince. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, is what I try to tell people is like the um, when you're a new comedian, when you're a new comedian, you think you're great, but you stink, and then thirty years later, you're a great comedian, but you think you stink. Right. And so my story here is like the best example of somebody like stand up comedy is such a, a crazy thing to pursue. 
I mean, it really doesn't make sense. I mean, going on stage in front of strangers trying to make them laugh and then pretty much sacrificing your entire life. You can't have a normal family life, normal domestic life, traveling. It's, uh, you, can, you can end up going broke and losing everything. And, and it's just so competitive and it's so difficult. It's insane, you know. So, um, and part of, you know, you have to be, you have to be a little bit crazy, but at the same time, you have to be delusional. Because if, if everybody fought straight when they got into stand-up comedy, there'd be no stand-up comedians. You know, it, it takes a little bit of delusion, self-delusion, and um, ignorance, and sometimes just being stupid to even get to the point where you can become a good comedian. And, and here's the ultimate story. Like, I mean, when I was 19, uh, even when I was in the Army, when I joined when I was 17, I was uh, very intelligent. And I scored super high on all the military tests, especially one for language aptitude. I, I maxed it out. Um, and, and that had never happened before. So I was a very smart person. And when I was a kid, I took IQ tests, whatever. But it's, you know, and there are kids with those same, you know, high intelligent level with, uh, with um, high IQ, uh, good at tests that when you talk to them, you know that they're those kind of kids. And they're the ones that make the uh, USA Today's academic all-stars every year, or they, they go to college when they're 16. You know, I was the opposite. I was the, I was the very smart kid that because they were so immature that you, you just said I was an idiot. And uh, so I did not have any maturity. And so I was so delusional. Um, I wanted to be a comedian, and my teacher, my drama teacher, told me, yeah, you should try the Cleveland Comedy Club. So um, when I was uh, freshly out of training for the Army Reserves, not sure what I was going to do for a career, working at my dad's factory, um, thinking I was going to go to college in the fall, um, I started you know, writing jokes with the idea of going to that open mic night at the Cleveland Comedy Club I heard of. And so I researched the Cleveland Comedy Club, and then one day in August... I called him up and said, hi, my name is Jeff Shaw. I'm a, I want to be a comedian, and I have some jokes. And somebody told me that this is where I do it, and that you have something called an open mic night. And they said, yes, it's every Sunday at 8 o'clock. Just come to the club, and we'll put you on. So that was the week before. So the, the week after, and I'm not, I, I can't really trace my thoughts leading up to this completely. All I can tell you is, the state I was in driving up to the club, but on uh, August 16th or 18th, whatever that Sunday in August was, in 1986. Um, I was like 20 years old, 19 years old, and uh, 19 and, uh, and a half, and uh, I uh, pull up the interstate of downtown Cleveland, kind of where, now, um, where Progressive Field is now, and uh, in my 1976 Pontiac Bonneville, um, I drove past the Cleveland Comedy Club looking for a place to park. And um, in the trunk of my car was a suitcase filled with three changes of clothes um, and gifts for Johnny Carson. And I had enough money that I took out of the bank to buy a plane ticket at the airport, and I had arranged um, for friends of mine to come pick up my car if um, Johnny Carson had sent a limo to the club to take me to the airport. So um, I, I pulled into the parking lot, and I got a place where I could uh, parking where I could leave the car for a couple of days if my friends couldn't come get it. But I had change of clothes, suitcase. Um, I had, uh, I think, some candy and a framed headshot of mine. It says, to Johnny, uh, you're my favorite, or something like that. I forgot what I put. And uh, I thought that I was going to show up at the open mic night, and that when I was done with my set, that the club owner was going to go into the office, get on the hotline to the Tonight Show, and tell Johnny Carson that I'm going to come out there the next day and that they should send a limo and take me to the airport. Right. And I was com 
completely packed, ready for that scenario. So I, uh, so, um, I was thinking about taking my suitcase into the club in case they want to take me out the back way or something, right. you know, and to show that I'm, I was ready, you know, yeah. and also maybe have them help me pick out an outfit. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and the fact that you're not laughing yet maybe means maybe this isn't the, the right audience for the story because comics are dying laughing at this point because it's like the funniest thing they've ever heard because I was serious. And so I, I, I show up at, uh, uh, oh, when I drove past the comedy club, I saw a line of people. And I thought, wow, obviously, you know, um, how did the club, how did these people know that I was there? Did, did um, the club call them up and tell them? And I go, wow, this is easier than I thought. I guess he must have told everybody that I was going to be there. I thought that those people had heard that I was going to be there for my first open night night and they were in line to see me. So I walk over, and then I see that these people in line are kind of weird looking. You know, some of them are kind of young my age, mostly guys. And then I'm thinking, this looks like a weird audience. And all of a sudden, I hear all these people talking about stuff I don't understand. Uh, yeah, did you think Dave's going to be back for the open mic contest this week? I don't know, man. Um, he won last week, so um, he's supposed to come and open the show, but um, I don't know, man. I think he. I think he might just quit because he's been doing it for five years, and this is the first open mic he's won. So I think he's ready to call it a day. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I go, hey, Jimmy, are you doing that joke again that you tried last week? Yeah, man, I got to try it one more time before I drop it because you know I've been working on it for six months, and I think I got the one line that I was looking for to work. And uh, hey, where's Bob at? Oh, he's doing the other open mic. You know, I keep telling him it doesn't go every week. You know, it's going to take more than five years of coming MC. And I'm listening to all this. I'm going, what the heck are these guys talking about? I sort of get this sick feeling in my stomach. And I go, hey, are you guys here for the open mic night? And they go, yeah, yeah, we're all comedians. Go on. You know, uh, uh, you want to do it? Yeah, we'll draw numbers and stuff, and then we'll hopefully get picked for the show. And I'm sitting there for a half an hour listening to these guys talk about comedy. They're talking about writing jokes, how it takes to do a joke a hundred times to get it to work but how they've been doing comedy for five years and they still can't get past to be an MC at the club. And all of a sudden, all my fantasies of going to the airport to, to appear on The Tonight Show, and I brought multiple outfits because I thought that you put me on back-to-back like you did with um, uh, Stephen Wright. All this starts to, like, just dissolve, and I start to become panicky, and I start to be filled with fear and dread that I got myself into something that I was not prepared for. And uh, the fantasy just died quickly. But then everyone started to be nice to me, and they were talking passionately about comedy, and then I started getting relaxed, and then I started getting interested, and then I started becoming excited. And then I went in, um, and they uh, they picked me for the show, and uh, I watched all these other comics in front of me from the back of the room, and I became enraged. I became so angry that these unfunny losers were taking up my show. And and I was just like, I was like, and and, and in hindsight, they were all very funny, much funnier than I was. But I was so clueless and so idiotic that I didn't know, I didn't know what it took to write jokes. I didn't know what a good joke was if if it bit me on the nose. So I'm in the back thinking, wait till my turn, wait till my turn. I'll show these people, I'll show these people. And then... Um, they tell me, yeah, there's a one more comic in front of you, so get ready. So um, I uh, get my um, uh, my little book bag with me, my little duffel bag, and I, I said, is there a place I can change? And they go, yeah, you can go change in the bathroom. So I was in the Army Reserves, so I decided that I, need a, I needed a look. So I thought that because I had a, uh, a um, I had a, uh, uh, a crew cut, an army crew cut, and military glasses that I would wear a, a, a like a old suit and skinny black tie um, that I got from a Salvation Army to look like you know um, Jackie Lennon or, or, or Phil Silvers or, or any of those comics from the fifties and seventies that wear a suit and skinny tie, and I thought that I would use the military glasses and my short hair as my look, and so. I uh, I got all dressed up in my suit, my white shirt, my little skinny black tie. Uh, I, I had my hair all sticking up, you know, and I had my military glasses on. 
And I walk out of the bathroom, and uh, I hear the MC goes, all right, this next comedian has been working here for, like, you know, a few years, and he's actually one of the paid regulars, and he will be the MC for Bill, um, Bill Maher next, uh, next week. Uh, he's going places, this kid. Ladies and gentlemen, big round of applause for Drew Carey. And then Drew Carey walks up on stage with his gray suit, with a white shirt, black tie, crew cut, and military glasses. And I'm standing in the back of the room with my jaw open watching him wearing my gray suit, white shirt, black tie, crew cut, and military glasses. And I felt like a nuclear bomb had, had gone off, and I was just like, I felt like, I felt like, one of those Nazis at the end of the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they were just melting. And I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So I panicked, and I went to the bathroom, and I changed. Okay? And then I didn't, and, and, I, I, uh, and he was killing, and he was very, very funny. And then I was listening to his jokes, going, oh, my God, those are hilarious, and he was killing. And I started just freaking out. And so then uh, I changed back into my clothes, but I had my glasses on, but I didn't want to wear regular glasses on stage, but I didn't want to wear the military glasses, so I decided to go up without any glasses. And so um, the MC um, introduced me. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our kid here from the West Side. It's his first time on stage ever. Be nice to him. Our kid for Jaded Jeff Shaw. Um, that was my stage name, Jaded Jeff Shaw. I was such a stupid kid that I didn't even know Jaded meant like, like, um, you know, like um, cynical. I thought it meant like weird or crazy or something like that, uh, you know, like, like offbeat. So I didn't, I didn't even pick my, my name correctly. So um, I'm not wearing my glasses, so I can't see, and the club is dark, and I go to get onto the stage, and I miss the stairs, and I fall onto the table in front of the stage, knocking over plates and drinks, you know, um, and uh, everyone just, Everyone just, the whole place just stops, like this silence. And except for the people who, whose table I saw, and they start swearing their heads off. And then somebody else, um, wow, I never thought I would yell this before, but get on the stage. <laughs> Instead of off the stage. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I climb onto the stage, everyone's staring at me. And then I'm in character. I'm, 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 I'm making weird faces like the Joker from, uh, from Batman. And, and, and nobody told me that, that hearing my voice was going to freak me out. You know, that hearing my voice uh, over a loudspeaker was going to be weird. And nobody told me that, um, that uh, the lights would be blinding my eyes. And so I was totally freaked. And the first time I heard my voice, I was just, I mean, uh, the whole thing was surreal. And so I go into my first jokes. Um, I go, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm kind of in a bad mood tonight. Oh, no, my sister's been cheating on me. Boy, wait till my uncle finds out. Boy, is grandma going to be angry. You know, it was just like, and people are just staring at me. And I'm thinking these are jokes I'm going to do on The Tonight Show. And I do a whole thing about my girlfriend being a leper in a leper colony. You know, yeah, like yeah. I met her, her dad, Fester, and her dog, Spots, and her cat, Puss in Boots. You know, and, uh, and, and, and just like people are just like booing me. And I, 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 I run off the stage after like two minutes and run to the back of the room, like in just like in total sh shock and I can't breathe and I'm hyperventilating and um, <laughs> and then I hear the MC go up and go hey let's hear it for that Jeff Shaw kid kind of a short act I caught it between strokes in the men's room and then the place goes crazy laughing and then I feel a, a poking on my shoulder a poke, poke 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 hey kid hey kid and I turn around and it's Drew Carey and he goes, hey, kid, that was, that was pretty good for your first time. It's your first time, huh? First time? Oh, hey, that's not bad. That's not bad for your first time. You had a joke I liked. I liked the one joke. And I said, well, what, 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 what joke is that? And, and he liked one of my jokes. He said, the joke where you said, um, 
My mom says I'm so small, I'd be late to my own funeral. But no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even go. I never liked the bum in the first place. And that's how Drew said it with his cadence. Yeah. So that was one of the one of the few jokes I got laughed with was, you know, um, my mom says I'm so small, I'd be late to my own funeral. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even go. I never liked the bum in the first place. And so he liked that joke. And I didn't realize that dying your first time on stage was like par for the course. And that if you got one joke that another comedian liked, that you were like, you passed. That you're like, yeah, good job. So um, I was so mortified that I didn't go back on stage for seven months. And when I did, I returned to the Cleveland Comedy Club and uh, I started um, doing well enough to get laughs and started getting feedback from the other comedians that within six months, I found myself working on the road. And Thanksgiving of 1987, I was the feature act for Drew Carey at the Funny Bone in Milwaukee, and we spent Thanksgiving together. And the rest is history. Oh, that, uh, we really appreciate that, Jeff. And with that, we thank you so much for your, 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 your time and all your insight. Any, any final thoughts uh, here before we go? Um, you, I, have a, I do YouTube videos. My uh, comedian, Jeff Shaw, um, I have a series called You're Doing It Wrong. I have an album coming out at On Tour Records. Follow me on uh, my news page on my, on, my, on my website or follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. And um, when my album is released, I'll be doing multiple posts about it so you won't be able to miss it. It'll be on, available for purchase through my site, through OnTourRecords.com and anywhere that sells digital music. And it'll also be available for streaming and all that stuff. But... Uh, and, yeah, and also I'm available for virtual shows for corporations or holiday parties, uh, birthday parties, things like that. And uh, my schedule is always on my website. And uh, if um, I'm doing a uh, show near you, I will be doing the Looney Bin Chain in Oklahoma, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Tulsa, and Wichita, Kansas, uh, Thanksgiving weekend through the weekend before Christmas. So you can check their website or check my website if you live in that area. And hopefully I'll get back down to Florida. I had all my Florida gigs canceled for the spring and summer. Play all the top clubs down there. And it was canceled because of uh, COVID. And they're not rescheduling out-of-town comedians. They're using all local comedians now until we get a vaccine and everything, the industry recovers. But I will be back to Florida sometime uh, next year or, or 2022. It's my favorite state to perform comedy, and I love it. Okay, that's uh, great, Jeff. My guest has been Jeff Sean. You've been listening to the Mike Care Radio program, What's Up America? And please catch us again the next time. Okay, that sounded 